Hello, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Thank you for joining me for another episode where we are going to look at art and its role in, you know, this rolling evolution of humanity. And one of the great functions of art is that it can really help us to grok, to really deeply understand and inhabit various worldviews in ways other than thinking. And so therefore it can sort of transmit it. It, it installs it in ways that only art can, you know, whether it's a symphony or fine art or whatever it might be. So today I'm going to look at my favorite genre of art, postmodern art. Uh, and uh, I, I'll probably like integral art better once we're clearer on what that is. But um, I love postmodern art. And I want to use three examples of, um, of postmodern art that I think really, you know, come at it from different angles. One is Cirque du Soleil, which is very beautiful, or very pretty. They're all beautiful, but very pretty and sweet. Then there's the Saatchi Museum of Fine Art in London, which is often aggressively ugly. And then there's the Seinfeld Show, which doesn't care one way or the other. They're all different, but again, all beautiful and potent in the way that they move the aesthetic line forward for people. I really enjoyed doing this episode. I did it actually well over a year ago. It was one of my first Facebook live videos. I didn't um, get a lot of views, but I'm bringing it back for my Daily Evolver site. And it's one of my personal favorites. And one of the reasons being is that it has a lot of pictures. And so that's fun if you're watching, but a bit of a problem if you're just listening. So I'm publishing this for you podcast listeners. Not that there won't be some value to, you know, listening, I suppose. But this is one you really ought to go watch. And you can see it only at my website at the moment, at least. And that's a dailyvolver.com. And I think it would be worth it. So here it is. It's called Postmodern Beauty, from, from Cirque to Seinfeld to Saatchi. Thanks for listening. And what I'm going to talk about today is actually art. And art is, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, it almost has a gravitational pull. That's uh, a good way of looking at it. It pulls eros forward in the universe as we have ever unfolding stages of beauty. And what I want to look at today is one of my favorite genres of art, and that is postmodern art, which is the latest unfolding that we can really identify. Integral art is next, and we have some insights into that. But I want to look at postmodern art because it really helps us to um, understand ourselves as we understand that. And um, because most of us are, you know, as I often say, knee deep to neck deep in green or postmodern uh, consciousness. And so I'm going to look at three great works, in my opinion, of postmodern art. One is the Cirque du Soleil, which is performance art. It's the postmodern circus. The second is the TV show Seinfeld, which is a towering work of postmodern uh, pop art, popular art. 
And then also, third, the Saatchi Museum in London, which is my favorite museum in the world. And it is the home of uh, fine art that is postmodern. And we'll take a look at that, too. So happy to start with the Cirque du Soleil because I have been absolutely buzzing over the last couple days, uh, having seen the latest show that they have down at the Pepsi Center in Denver, which they set up just like a, you know, old fashioned circus in a tent. And it's really very, very cool. Um, and, um, you know, I still feel a buzz from it. You know, I still, still feel uplifted. And that's, you know, what art can do, it, it sort of adds to the immortal aesthetic body of the cosmos and maybe my own individual one. I'm not entirely sure about that, but it definitely delivers us into an altered state. Um, and in the case of Cirque du Soleil, it's, it's really an interesting uh, troupe in a way. I mean, it's a global troupe. It's, it brings in over a billion dollars a year and it is a conscious reinvention of the circus tradition, which, of course, has been with us since day one. You know, um, tribal cultures entertained themselves and each other with all sorts of feats of acrobatics and skill and bravery and all of that sort of thing. And that evolved, as culture did, uh, so that by the time we got to good, solid, traditional uh, culture, the circus tradition was very much a part of virtually all of them, I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, it, it was just the, the, the local troops that would be, you know, in basically every hamlet. And then by the time we get to modernity, we see the circus the way we typically do today, which is, well, actually, as of about a few months ago, but the modern circus. And that came online in the late 1700s where they had enough of the logistics and communications and stuff together. They could, they could make these big traveling shows. And they also had wild animals at this point, particularly from Africa, which nobody had ever seen. So this is the era getting into the mid-1800s of P.T. Barnum and um, the Ringling Brothers, uh, all mid-1800s. And we get to um, what we remember as the greatest show on earth. And, um, and this is um, what really has been the circus tradition um, since then. And um, actually the Ringley Brothers Circus just closed down about uh, three or four months ago after 147 years in business. And the reason for that is, is, you know, as I said, it was the modern circus, the circus built around logistics, the circus that doesn't have a lot of sense of interiority in terms of cultural appropriation and that sort of thing. It had the great white hunters, all that sort of thing. And when modernity, post-modernity comes online in the 60s, uh, that starts to feel uncool. You know, the circus is just really basically pretty old fashioned and uncool. Uh, and by the time we get to mature postmodernism, we actually find it to be quite objectionable. And this, we, we sort of realize that there's no way to get wild animals to do tricks without using fear uh, and some sort of intimidation. And particularly the elephants, 
I mean, the Ringley brothers tried to retire the elephants. They did retire the elephants a year ago, but the the attendance went down so precipitously that they just finally closed the show. They realized they can't do it without elephants. And this is one of the great things about post-modernity is that we get a, a, a sense of the interiority of animals and the sense of how animals and we share the same, so much of the same emotional body that we just can't watch it anymore. So then we have the postmodern circus and that's Cirque du Soleil. And so let's take a look. And so how does Cirque du Soleil deal with animals? Does Cirque du Soleil have animals? Yes, it has a wonderful show of animals. And here you see the lion tamer. And except that the lion is this magnificent puppet that is um, animated by a team of people. And it captures lionness or felineness better than any poor king of beasts, you know, on some platform, you know, that's dancing to a whip in a chair. You know, I mean, that's untenable now because at postmodernity, we've moved from an I-it relationship to animals to an I-thou relationship. We see the interiority. So that's one of the great changes. Does Cirque du Soleil have acrobats? Oh, yeah. They have lots of acrobats. Let me put this on full screen. They have lots of acrobats from all over the place. And this is one of their great strengths is that they have a troop of, rec of recruiters that go really go around to these traditional circuses in countries all over the world and see the YouTubes and so forth. And they recruit these people from all over the world. And they're just magnificent. Um, do they have clowns? Yeah, they have a clown. Uh, it's the closest thing to a character with any sort of identifiability. He just sort of wanders through the whole uh, show. Uh, and of course, they also have a strong man. Uh, do they have, what do they do with the freak show? Well, they have a postmodern version of the freak show. This young man from Russia, and I had to look it up that he was from Russia. They, of course, say nothing about any of their characters. Uh, and he is just amazing. This is him from the show I saw. This is him from another show. And um, it gave you the same kind of wow, queasy feeling of a freak show of old. You know, it was, um, in fact, there were people murmuring as we left the theater. I was thinking about it myself. I hope that kid's okay. You know, he seemed like he was maybe 20 years old. But anyway, what they don't have at Cirque du Soleil, Soleil is a ringmaster or, for that matter, a story or any other reason for being that isn't, um, you know, that, that other than just the sheer display of beauty. So in um, Cirque du Soleil, hang on here, you enter their dream. And um, as I said, the performers are all 
anonymous. There's none of this flying Walenda stuff, no Annie Oakley, the daring young man in the flying trapeze, none of that stuff. They, there's no backstory. They're not on a hero's journey. There's, they're not changed or grow one bit on the show. They're, you know, you never hear their names or thing about them. You see astonishing feats of trapeze or high dive or acrobats, uh, with, you know, no fanfare. I mean, they, when it's over, they instantly draw your attention to something else. They may have some big ironic bow that is a parody of real appreciation. Uh, people wandering around siphoning energy, you know, so they'll have this big show and there's somebody sweeping or watering flowers. And, you know, it's suspicious of having any kind of like, big cathartic sense of self-satisfaction or completion. Uh, and that's not to say that it's flat in any way or emotionless. It's very, very high in sensation. Uh, the singer, uh, there's a singer who wanders through two between scenes and she's just florid with emotion and has flowers and she's throwing petals and she's imploring the audience with her song, like a, you know, great opera singer except we're not sure what she's imploring us about. Uh, because although you can recognize words and what she's saying, they actually, at Cirque du Soleil, use what they call an invented language. So they're syllables and words, but they don't make us any, they don't make any sense. So, so what's, what's postmodern about that? Um, well, it's a sense that and this is a sense that this is a realization that we get from meditation. It's one of the first great realizations of meditation. And that is that life just continues to display. And it's ever changing. And to the degree that you can drop your preferences about how it's changing or what it's doing and just sort of trust and go with the flow. Um, that is, that's, that's to the good. That's, that's, a positive thing. And that's part of liberation. And so you have what they call in postmodern critique is surface without depth. So lots and lots of stuff going on, but really no story. And you notice that the mind is wanting to clench around meeting, meaning that's a, again, a realization of meditation. Uh, but um, it just doesn't happen. So uh, that, by the time you're done watching a Cirque du Soleil show, you have a sense of being unmoored from story, from, you know, the grand narratives of history, uh, which, of course, is what great art before postmodernism is all about. Uh, whether it's the, you know, greater glory of my tribe or my religion, my God, my nation, or in the sense of after enlightenment art, the great progress of modernity, you know, all of those stories are off the table. Um, Post-modernity saw the result of those stories in the first half of the 20th century, and their job is to deconstruct them. And that's what this does in its own beautiful way. All right. So that is that. And so now let's turn to, oh, hang on here, the TV show.
Seinfeld, which is another great work of postmodern art. And of course, Seinfeld uh, is a show that expresses a culture. It's, it's just one of the most influential shows of all time. Uh, it really is it, it, from a, from a evolutionary postmodern point of view. It is the show that is the perfect pop culture expression of deconstructionist philosophy. And uh, deconstructionist philosophy says something like, abandon the idea that behind appearances, there is any ultimate truth to be found. Okay? And so if there's no truth to be found, what do we have? And so with um, Seinfeld, we have the show that is self-consciously about nothing. <laughs> uh, we have, um, well, there's actually not nothing going on. There's plenty of stuff going on, just nothing meaningful. And that's sort of a predicament that we find ourselves in, in post-modernity, where, you know, modernity has pacified us. It's given us all the calories we need. We, we don't have to, we don't have existential enemies on the other you know, valley who are plotting to come over and slit our throats. Um, we have what would be by any definition of from a, an earlier time, we live in paradise. We live in uh, heaven. But the mind can, continues to obsess and strategize. I mean, the, you know, the millions of years of evolution where we're attracted to something and repelled by something else. That's, you know, very, very powerful. That's a, uh, that's part of the engine of evolution is wanting and, a, and, a, and aversion, attraction and aversion. Um, when, you know, those, the big things are gone or off the table, then we're just, you know, obsessed by ever more trivial things, but the mind really doesn't stop. And so you have, you know, the show that's built around how you were treated by the soup guy at the deli, the soup Nazi, or plots about how people eat. And it's so important. It's, it's, it's riveting to these characters about how people eat one pea at a time. Um, you have, uh, Jerry's obsession with are his girlfriend's breasts real or are they implants? And of course, Ellen, or Elaine finds out for him by pretending to bump into her in the sauna so that she can feel them and find out. <laughs> and of course, these, you know, cockamamie schemes for businesses and whatever. It's just, there's, so there's really not much going on in that sense. Nothing meaningful. That is, uh, you have these great power struggles, this great war between Seinfeld and his arch nemesis, Newman, who Seinfeld describes as pure evil, as Lex Luthor to his, Jerry's, Superman. So the arch enemy. But we never know what the argument's about. There's no point. There's no explanation for it. It's just there. Again, surface without depth. Uh, the closest thing we got to any kind of meaningful romantic love was uh, George's engagement to Susan, which uh, ended when <laughs> she died, actually, 
from being poisoned uh, by the glue on the wedding invitations that George got on the cheap. And uh, so he was sort of indirectly responsible. But when she died, there wasn't really, you know, nobody was too upset. In fact, George was quite relieved. And the show went on. Um, so that you have these all these people living seemingly normal lives, but just motivated by their base impulses and neuroses and peccadilloes and their habitual thinking. There's no motivation for goodness or empathy, no argument over big ideas, no impulse to grow and be a better person. And so you compare that to... Um, you know, past TV shows, iconic TV shows like Leave it to Beaver or Andy Griffith or Father Knows Best. Uh, these are traditional levels. You know, Father Knows Best, patriarchy, anyone, you know. Uh, but these are all little morality plays that would teach, you know, I watched them in real time. It taught us how to be honest and be good citizens and to love each other and to not like the bully and you know, all that good stuff. That's just good, good installation of traditional values. And then you have these great modernist TV shows that are really move the scene primarily from the family to the career. And that's the Dick Van Dyke show, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And these are installing, uh, and values of, um, you know, striving and getting ahead and, you know, being special and all of that good stuff. And then you have the later shows like All in the Family, MASH. These are shows that are sort of early postmodern in the sense that they would, even though the, the um, characters may not have learned or changed much, the audience learns. There's a sort of a um, liberal value system that's being transmitted. But not Seinfeld. Seinfeld is the ultimate deconstruction. It, it says none of that, none, none of that, all that off the table. And their motto, of course, their famous motto is no hugging and no learning. And I don't know if there's a more beautiful expression of postmodern modern ethics than that. Um, and what's it mean? Um, no hugging is basically a way of saying there's no happiness. Again, there's no self-satisfaction. There's no conclusion that one can reach. No ultimate meaning where we can feel good and held and rested and secure. And, of course, there's no learning, which is, you know, just completely against any idea of progress or growth. You know, these characters do not grow over nine seasons. So what in the world would cause human beings to reject things as basic as warmth and growth? And the answer is, it's simple. We don't trust them. We don't fucking trust your ideas of the supremacy of the, our tribe, race, God, nation. All these stories of the Enlightenment Project, educate, sur civilize, science, rationality. To heck with all of it. Because you know why? Look where it led to concentration camps, to nuclear weapons, to an ongoing eco-disaster. And so enough of that. And we just want to deconstruct the whole thing and realize that there are no grand narratives. There are no grand stories. We're just here. 
And we're not, we don't even have free will for God's sakes. We're just acting it out on, on a rock that's hurtling through space. And that's a real, that, you know, that sounds harsh and it is, but it's a full cleansing of these romantic stories that we need to really cleanse ourselves of before we can re-embrace something that looks like natural hierarchy. And that's a more integral view. And, and we'll talk just a bit about that. But um, all of this led, of course, to the finale of um, Seinfeld, which is still quite controversial. And, you know, I, I, I see the problem they had. How do you end this show, you know? And so what they had at the end, they, I, 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 I land on the side. I'm not a big fan of the ending, but I'll, I'll explain why. I think they lost their nerve in a way. Uh, uh, what they had was the, the gang, you know, Elaine and Kramer and George and Jerry, are they're traveling together through a long story. But at, at any rate, they um, witness a mugging where a guy is being, you know, uh, robbed. And rather than help him, they um, they make jokes about his size, and uh, Kramer films it all on a, cra- a camcorder as, as they walk away. Now, what was going on at that time in the culture was there had been a law passed in a town in Massachusetts called the Good Samaritan Law, which made it illegal not to help somebody who is in need. Uh, and so uh, they were playing off of that. And um, and, and the point they were making is that these people, these characters were so bad that, well, of course, there's a whole trial. They, they become they're, they're arrested for this uh, Good Samaritan, breaking this Good Samaritan law. And they're tried and all of the people that they screwed over. And, you know, even the, the, the lady that uh, Jerry stole the marble rye from uh, to come back and testify is a whole big thing. And they end up and this is the last scene. They're in jail. Actually, the last scene is Jerry doing a comedy routine from prison, which is hysterical. You should look it up on YouTube. But this is the last scene of them together, and they're behind bars. And that's how they ended the nine seasons. And again, I think it was, um, I get it, you know, they're, they're making the point that these people are bad. Uh, and the way they live, they're, they're sort of selfish, self-obsessed, their ways, these ways. Uh, should not be what we strive for. And so they end up in jail. And I, I thought it was out of character. I, I, I did not think that these four people would have walked away from somebody. I think they would have gotten in some hijinks about trying to save him. But, uh, I, I thought their sins were trivial and not malicious throughout the nine seasons. And, um, and I think that by, uh, Patholo- well, criminalizing it, let's say, that it's, it, 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 it sort of pulls back from what the show was so great at. And again, it's a meditative, uh, it's a realization of meditation uh, or, or therapy uh, that we have, we're, we're all um, populated by these selfish subpersonalities. That basically just want what we want, you know, that, that, you know, we want it to be warmer. We want the, there to be more icing on the cake. We want to have this person to sex with them. We want money, whatever we want. That the mind is always strategizing around our greater glory. 
And that we can watch our mind and we can see these subpersonalities in ourselves. I can see greedy Jeff. I can see lustful Jeff. I can see lazy Jeff. I can see Jeff who likes to be praised even though he doesn't deserve it. I can see all of these characters and I want to love them actually. Um, and I want to laugh at them. And this is what the show had been so good at for nine years and, you know, observe them with affection. And, um, so. I thought they pulled back from that a little bit, uh, but I don't know how else you end that show. And it doesn't matter in the scheme of things. It is a towering, historically significant work of postmodern art. All right. So that leads me to then the third example I want to use is this. And this is fine art in the sense of this is art that people who think a lot about art like. And uh, it's certainly fewer people than who, uh, you know, watch Seinfeld or pop art. So um, let's see here. This is the Saatchi Museum, which is one of my favorite, probably my favorite museum in the world. It's in London. It was founded by a rich businessman, Charles Saatchi, who loved the British wave of postmodern art, which is which is housed here mainly. That's a permanent ex uh, exhibition. Uh, and this is right in downtown London, right by the Ferris wheel. And you can see that it is, uh, here's another view. This is where it's being swarmed by giant ants, <laughs> which gives you an idea of what you're in for when you go in, because the ants are crawling around inside as well. This is an installation uh, by a... Um, a, 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 a Colombian artist, Rafael... Gomez Barros. Uh, and then you uh, see very quickly uh, what is the iconic um, sculpture in the Saatchi. And this is by Damien Hurst. And it is called, let me just hang on a second here. Let me get rid of myself so you can see it. It's called um, The Physical Impossibility of Death in the mind of someone living. The physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. And there's a koan for you. And I love, you know, in, in the, uh, museums where they have the medium, you know, it's, is it uh, acrylic or is it oil or whatever? Here's the medium. Glass, steel, formaldehyde, and tiger shark. So there's... Here's another by Damien Hurst called This Little Piggy Went to Market, This Little Piggy Stayed Home. And it, as you can see, it's a pig that has been sawed laterally and also placed in glass cases filled with formaldehyde. Very striking, very disturbing. Uh, and then another one of his coup de gras, this one called some comfort gained from the acceptance of the inherent lies in everything. And again, a more postmodern statement I can't imagine, but I'll say it again. Some comfort gained from the acceptance of the inherent lies in everything. And here you can see that it is a slicing of a horse um, into sections from its face to its hind head to neck, 
on back to its tail and placed in a series of um, um, formaldehyde tanks that uh, expand it. So next is a series, of course, the female nude is a great uh, preoccupation of painters throughout history, actually, um, from the cave paintings. <laughs> so here's the postmodern version. And this is from Jenny Saville, who is a great painter. This is called How Art Has Lied About Women's Bodies. There's another in that series, a woman who's groping her flesh. This one's called Fulcrum. It's three women in a row reclining in repose. Um, a transsexual friend, I'm forgetting the name of this one. It's the name of the person. And these are beautiful, big paintings. You can see the size and scale of these paintings. So um, how does this, how is this kind of art progress? How does this make a better world? Um, and you can see that, you know, one of the ways that we move forward is by disturbing ourselves by creating inner conflict and to see particularly for some reason the horse of Damien Hirst that he's dissected into uh, these um, expanded uh, slivers is so heartbreaking because you realize that was a horse that was born as a colt and who scampered around and uh, lived its life and somehow that horse ended up in this formaldehyde uh, and it just, it's horrifying, just literally horrifying. And, um, but it again brings up to us the horror of how we treat animals. Uh, because of course animals are being dissected by the billions. It's called the meat industry, billions. Um, and, um, and we, including me, uh, enjoy the fruits of that. And um, so it's a disturbance that has led, I mean, this is a, a piece, I believe, from the mid-90s, the Damien Hirst's, uh, that, that series. Uh, and it, uh, of course, animal rights has um, uh, really exploded since then. There's awareness of that. And there's a wonderful expression uh, called, in German, uh, I forget the German version, but it's translated as art is the civil servant of the unknown. Art is what brings forth what's new. And so you see in fine art that this kind of an assaultive um, work uh, really is the point of the spear for, um, you know, animal rights in general. Uh, the Jenny Saville paintings of women, uh, how art has lied about women's bodies. Um, they're um, transgressive in the sense that they show women who are not typically thought of as being beautiful, doing things that we don't typically think of as being beautiful. And yet that has also uh, coincided with an amazing move in culture, even in the last 20 years. And this, this art is 20 to 25 years old of an acceptance of all sorts of human bodies. It's no longer cool 
to make fun of people for their bodies. You, you see in music videos, um, sexy young people of all shapes and sizes dancing and shaking their booties. And um, it's a relief from the limited, constrictive senses of beauty that, uh, say, I grew up with, where you had to be pretty to be beautiful. And, um, and that's, a, that's a, a very important differentiation. This is what art can do. Uh, another thing that postmodern art does, and you see at the Saatchi, let me go back to the slides here, is they'll, you know, consciously reinterpret uh, the great works of art of the past. And here we have a great work from the past called The Choice of Hercules. It's an Italian Baroque period, a Nicholas Poussin. And um, it shows Hercules uh, being pulled in two directions. Um, one by uh, Vice, who is the one on the right, who is uh, enticing him to go to a sunny valley. And Virtue is the one on the left who is showing him the rocky path that he has in store for him if he uh, chooses to do that. And of course he does. And then there's a little Cupid who's holding up a little posy. So this is a great work of Hercules being drawn by the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. Great theme of, of, you know, history. Here's the new version from the Saatchi. This is called Hey Good Looking, After Poussin's The Choice of Hercules is the name of the piece, done by Martin Maloney. And so you look at this and you think, this is, pro <laughs> this is progress? <laughs> and yeah, it is. Uh, and I'll explain why in a second. And I'll use this as an example, too. This is from Michelangelo. This is from the Sistine Chapel. This is the piece called The Last Judgment. And it shows um, the husk of the uh, the skin of St. Bartholomew being held there, uh, who was one of Jesus' disciples and was skinned alive and became, of course, a great Christian martyr. This is a story of martyrdom. And so here's the conscious reinterpretation of that at the Saatchi called No Visible Means of Escape. Uh, and this is, of course, the, well, it's, it's the artist Mark Quinn, and he cast from his own body um, as if he were being skinned alive. And it's far more brutal, far more uh, taken from any kind of context uh, or aggrandizement uh, and just shown for what it is. And, um, and what's interesting is that when Michelangelo was painting his great romantic piece, in the Sistine Chapel, uh, people were actually being flayed. Uh, the Inquisition was in full force, and and um, and now with um, you know the, the postmodern era, uh, as brutal as our art can be, uh, we're actually far less violent and far nicer. And it's interesting how that works. You know, it's it's sort of this paradox that you see of of. Uh, the, the, the brutality of video games versus the placidity, <laughs> largely, at least um, in terms of uh, great movements of, of history, the relative um, uh, pacification of the people who play them. And it's, again, that's what art can do. Uh, let's look at the slides. Uh, here's another one. This is uh, one of their takes on religion. Of course, post-modernity uh, rejects religion 
and uh, wants to deconstruct all of the myths of, of traditional religion. And this is an applique, and it reads, Come unto me. Uh, the name of it is called Automatic Orgasm. And the, le- uh, the words say, Come unto me. And then, Every time I feel love, I think, Christ, I'm going to be crucified. So I close my eyes, and I become the cross. So beautiful. Again, every time I feel love, I think, Christ, I'm going to be crucified. So I close my eyes and become the cross. So beautiful. And you can sort of feel the deconstructive transmission of that. You know, that there is a uh, almost a literal metabolization of becoming the cross. Uh, so that, you know, I can be crucified for love, uh, or something like that. Uh, always a little ambiguous in post-modernity, but I think still quite powerful. And then we have, of course, uh, the critique of corporatism. And here's a series done by Jake and Dinos Chapman of, um, fetishes from um, sort of a Victorian approach to fetishes from from Africa. And uh, this is called the Chapman Family Collection, Tribal Fetishes. And they're displayed in a classic sort of Victorian style, which you can see here, some other individual ones. And as you look at these, you see that these are actually uh, fetishes of McDonald's, totems from McDonald's. And again, displayed in this Victorian style that is a very powerful indictment of imperialism, cultural appropriation, all of that stuff. You can see in the far left here that the Hamburglar is being crucified. He shouldn't have taken all those hamburgers. But um, that is, I love one, I love that whole installation. Uh, and then um, finally, I'll just do my, my favorite piece in the whole uh, museum, which is a piece done by the artist Sarah Lucas, and it's called Au Naturel. And this is a postmodern take on romantic love. Au Naturel by Sarah Lucas. And I'll read the um, description that they posted in the book I bought. The empty shuck of an instantly recognizable image, the filthy mattress, the old tin bucket, droopy melons, the requisite six inches of cucumber protruding hungrily from an unsavory stain. Welcome to married life a hollow shell of easy comfort and habitual relegation, fat with make-do satisfaction and occasionally pondered dreams of what could have been. Domestic objects, uncanny and banal, stand in for a passion so thoroughly plowed there's not a hint of intrigue left. Only the well-practiced compliance of tolerating each other's nose-picking and silent farts. (laughs) Wow. 
<laughs> That's uplifting, huh? I love that. A passion so thoroughly plowed, there's not a hint of intrigue left. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, here's the, actually, let me show you the artist. Um, this is Sarah Lucas herself uh, with her self-portrait with fried eggs. So, anyway, uh, that's a take on postmodern art and some of my favorite works, the Cirque du Soleil, which is, of course, beautiful and pretty. Um, the, the, the look of the Cirque du Soleil is literally thrilling. Uh, and, but you can see that there's a difference between pretty and beautiful, especially evolutionarily. A lot of times what moves us forward to greater unfoldings of goodness, truth, and beauty look like anything but as we can see here with both Seinfeld and, of course, the assault of ugliness of these works of postmodern art, which say, I dare you not to say, that, to say that I'm not beautiful. I dare you. And what, what's your standard for beauty? There is no standard for beauty. And with no standards, with, with no truth left, what we have is a world where... Um, it's basically based on power, you know, who's getting over on who. And uh, so that is the, you know, insight of postmodernity. And there's truth to that. Um, what changes at Integral is that we see that there is an opportunity uh, for creativity in every moment, that there's a, an opportunity for progress and that there is a historical movement, excuse me, from um, uh, a movement of history of the unfolding of goodness, truth, and beauty. And, um, you know, that there is meaning in that, that the meaning is in the growth and that there is a, even though we want to dismantle all of the um, dominator hierarchies, of history because of the you know horrible results of believing in them you know the supremacy of my tribe um or even the the story of the progress of modernity uh that those have to be challenged but that once that we are cleansed of those whew, we can take a breath and we can see that there is a natural hierarchy that is online. And one of the great examples of that is the growth of any individual organism, a human being from childhood to adolescence to adulthood to old age, and that that is a natural hierarchy. And that humanity as a whole is going through something like that as well. So um, I'll take that. Uh, because it brings back hugging and learning. And I think that's important. All right. So, you know, we can talk more about art. Uh, any thoughts that you have, I'd love to hear. You can uh, contact me at dailyevolver.com. I think there's actually a link on the Facebook page to, to uh, uh, a voicemail system I have called SpeakPipe. And you can leave me messages and if you have any examples of postmodern art or any ideas or criticisms or, you know, arguments, I love to hear them. So until next time, this is Jeff signing off. Thanks much, people.